It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. And I'm so happy that you have made it to class this Sunday morning. Now, I have been waiting for our next guest to join the front of the class for a very long time. Fresh off of her appearance earlier this week from on The Daily Show, she is now on Sunday Civics. Look at that. We're competing for an Image Award, and now she's coming here. Um, Sherilyn Eiffel, who is a civil rights lawyer and scholar, the former president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She's now a senior fellow at Ford Foundation and is writing a book entitled, Is This America? About how the unfinished business of race has led us to this moment of democratic crisis. And I want to welcome to the front of the class, Sherilyn Eiffel. Hello. Hi, Joy. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled Thank to be here. Thank you so much for accepting. I put out my wish list you did. for the beginning of the year and you were like, oh, say less. Have you heard, <laughs> have you heard from President Obama yet? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. And I appreciate, I really appreciate you accepting the invitation to come on and join us. So you know, I want you to start where we ask all of our guests to start because we believe in the power of storytelling. It's part of who we are as a people. And if you can share with us the story of your first civic action. So first of all, Joy, I want to just congratulate you on this show. Um, I talk a lot about uh, what it means to be, uh, to do the work of citizenship. And, you know, because obviously we talk a lot about voting, which is, you know, premier and important I talk about jury service. I talk about um, showing up at candidate town halls and and um, requiring more of those we elect and calling your senator and all that stuff. But learning is, is a key and important part of being a responsible and informed citizen. And at this moment in our country, we really need that. And so I love this show and I love the commitment to um, making sure that we're informed and that we're learning and that we have a grounding um, for our beliefs. And I, I just think this is such an important show. And I'm so excited that you were nominated for an NAACP Image Award uh, and all the accolades are, are well-deserved. Okay, my first civic action, it kind of catches me by surprise thinking about it. I will, I will, I will answer it in two ways. Um, when I was in elementary school, uh, I was in elementary school in Queens. I grew up in Queens, New York. I was bused to school uh, from kindergarten through the, through the sixth grade. And um, I remember that there were various racial incidents in my elementary school. Um, now, uh, the school was integrated. Black kids were bused into a white school in Flushing, New York. We came from uh, Jamaica, from South Jamaica. New York and um, and we were bused into the schools in Flushing and um, and it was a great school. I had a fantastic public school experience in um, in New York. But I remember in elementary school there would be 
these, you know, incidents usually involving teachers or the librarian or, or where we felt in some way that we were being slighted. And I remember at one point we had a principal named Miss Small. And I remember going with a group of other Black students to see Miss Small to talk about um, our belief that a particular um, teacher or administrator was what we call prejudiced. And so I just remember that um, being very young, we were not at all intimidated or scared. And part of it was because we were in a group. It was like three or four of us and we went in together. Um, I remember her seeming deeply skeptical, <laughs> uh, this white principal of our account, but we felt we had to say it anyway. And I just remembered the, the feeling of, of having that conversation of going to her office and you know, important lessons from that. One, that we felt we should do it. Secondly, that uh, we knew to do it in a group. Uh, thirdly, that she listened to us. Um, and, I don't, and fourthly, that I recall not feeling particularly satisfied with the outcome, but that didn't change the feeling of having gone into the office. And I frankly don't remember the underlying incident um, or whether it was credible or not. It was just how we felt and we wanted to share it with her. So that, so that's kind of when you really press me, I think kind of the earliest, you know, moment of activism. Um, but, you know, I would also say, you know, um, when I was 18, um, I took on the job of being a census taker. Um, and so this would have been the 1980 census. And, uh, so I, I love later on, you know, I've seen this wonderful photograph of Shirley Chisholm uh, with her, with her, you know, satchel on, her census satchel. She too was a census taker. Um, but being a census enumerator was important uh, now, now that I think about it and, and years later. At the time, it was, you know, my summer job before I went to college and I was trying to make some money. But it, it did something important. You know, you would go from house to house and, and we had teams and um, you were in your own neighborhood, um, but you know, in the broader uh, element of your neighborhood. And I learned a lot about my neighborhood um, from being a census taker because you know you knocked on doors and you learned who was in the home, you learned where different people lived, you learned that um, you really do need feet on the ground to do the census properly because sometimes there are places where you wouldn't imagine someone lives, but they do live there. Um, and, uh, you know, neighbors help you, you know, figure out where you should go. And I just, I've never forgotten that experience of finding all of these streets and alleys that I didn't know about and, you know, walking up to people and, and having them open their door, which I think they very much did because we looked like them. Uh, we were, you know, from the same um, larger neighborhood and, and, and there was a sense of, uh, they didn't know us, but there was a sense that, we were not, you know, dangerous or threatening in some way. And so I, I, I've taken that experience with me through my voting rights work and through our advocacy around the census and the importance of um, having a cohort of census takers that reflect the communities that they're going to enter to try and, and do the enumeration. Um, and, uh, and also about what you learn about your neighborhood when you're engaged in that kind of action on the ground. Yeah, you know, I love the stories when people are describing their first civic action and talking about being in school, partly or specifically before having the right to vote, 
right? Because you recognize some injustice and your responses that I have to speak up, I have to say something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to me, it has become more real now raising children. My seven-year-old, my 14-year-old is not as vocal, right? But my seven-year-old, if she believes there's some injustice or you have done not only mm-hmm. her wrong, but mm-hmm. other kids Others, wrong, yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that gets her incensed the most is that yeah. you've done something to, you know, mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, she goes off, right? Mm-hmm. And then add on to that, like me being president of the local, you know, NAACP. Mm-hmm. She's like, my mama is the president. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know but, who my but mother that, is? But, but that spirit of advocacy, right? Right. You know, is powerful. And it is not, and I'm so glad you just said what you just said, because I think that sometimes we mistakenly suggest to people that their only avenue of civic action is voting. It's a powerfully right. important one, but there are many others. And you have to really work within the ecosystem of advocacy to use all the powers that you have as a citizen to make change. And voting is one of them and one of the most important. But as you point out, long before we're able to cast a ballot, we we instinctively uh, know, you know what some of those other avenues are and we begin exercising them pretty early on. Yeah, I mean, and for children, they they can sniff out, they know injustice, right? Mm-hmm. They know injustice in the household when you're telling them something to do that's different than another kid, <laughs> you know, or things yes. like that. So yes. that that instinct of something is wrong or you're mm-hmm. doing something that's not fair. A fairness, and then yeah. Mm-hmm. I need to be vocal about it, right? I need to call it out, mm-hmm. right? And then you need to act, meaning you mm-hmm. need to apologize respond. or you mm-hmm. need to respond in some mm-hmm. way to address this issue. And just thinking of it from that child's perspective, making it that simple is how, you know, I try to explain to people of being you know, civically engaged is like, you can see it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. instinct, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at something. So unless you are deliberately putting mm-hmm. on blinders, mm-hmm. right? It is instinct for you to see, this isn't mm-hmm. fair. This yes. is, you know, we're not treating people, yes. you know, equitably here. You know, this community needs this or whatever. So unless you are deliberately mm-hmm. hiding, you know, Mm -hmm. behind Mm -hmm. certain things like privilege, like, you know, set like all things or whatever. Or hiding behind, hiding behind ignorance, you know, pretending you don't know what you know, or that you need some extra stuff. We're going to have more of my conversation with Cheryl and Eiffel when we come right back after this break. Who is the Tisha? I will let you know. So I I wanted to talk to you and in my dream world, right, my dream was I'm going to talk to Sherilyn Eiffel and former President Obama together on Constitution Day about the U.S. Constitution. Like that. Well, he's late. He's late. I know. He's late. (laughs) But, you know, to me, it was it, you know, that dream of being able to talk to a scholar and a tactician like yourself, and then also to talk to someone who's not only been a constitutional law scholar, but then also having to and be bound by both the constraints and the liberties of the constitution in the office of the presidency, thought that would be a dynamic conversation. Now, when I'm he comes available, you and, I'm, available. Right, I'm available. When they come to you and tell you they want to want you to do this for Netflix, be like, no. <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> 
But the reason I have been spending a lot of time recently, really because I'm a, you know, a, a student of life, if, if you will, a lot of the books that I have on my list to read this year is about the Constitution itself. And as someone who is a student of their early founding and, you know, of the Constitution and how the country's put together and everything, I'm, I'm both always amazed at how this was put together, obviously knowing the shortfalls, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the individuals who put it together mm-hmm. and, and the tensions that the restrictions and liberties that were created in that document that we live under, you know, mm-hmm. every day. And, you know, thinking about something as basic as the Constitution was, you know, developers like three million people in the country mm-hmm. at that time. That's mm-hmm. how many people are in Brooklyn right now. <laughs> right? like, so, like there is this constraint of like we've we've grown significantly 100 mm-hmm. times more and also a more diverse population. And I wonder from your perspective as someone who has to, you know, litigate under this, who writes under the whatever, do you have time for that esoteric view <laughs> of the Constitution? And then being able to drill it down on how it has an impact on our daily lives and our daily freedoms? Well, it, it's not esoteric, Joy, um, especially when you have a Supreme Court that um, has allowed itself to be kind of captured by a vision of constitutional law that is the equivalent of, um, you know, an archeological dig, right? It is, you know, trying to find out what the original meaning was, right? That the the inquiry into constitutional meaning is supposed to begin and end at what those guys um, would have thought hundreds of years ago in a country that, as you say, was, um, a hundred times smaller in population than this country, less diverse, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think that we don't have a choice but to engage that those, that set of questions because the school of thought known as originalism, um, uh, mostly held by conservatives who seek to divine the um, vision and meaning of the Constitution by solely referencing how those words would have been understood in in 1789 or in 1791 or whenever a particular constitutional provision was enacted. Most recently in the Dobbs case, the case that overturned Roe versus Wade, um, and in the Bruin case, um, which was a case involving uh, the right of states to be able to constrict and, and to create gun safety laws, you know, the the court has embraced this idea that if a particular right is not grounded in the history and traditions of our country, that uh, it cannot be said to be constitutional. And their analysis, their way of determining whether something is grounded in the history and traditions of our country is carried out by a kind of, you know, exhaustive search that takes us into the 1600s in England and the 1700s here in this country uh, and the 1800s, and that um, basically deprioritizes the contemporary truth, uh, the contemporary reality of how these um, rights are experienced uh, in favor of this archaeological dig 
that um, they believe constitutes a, a, a legitimate school of, of jurisprudential um, analysis and decision-making. So we have to engage those questions. Um, but we also have to push back against the idea that understanding the constitution begins and ends with you know, a historical um, analysis of what was going on at the time a particular provision was being ratified. I, I do think that's a relevant inquiry. I don't think it's irrelevant to know what how this um, particular provision came to be, what was the historical context, what how did the framers think about what this might mean, what would, what was the ultimate goal of what they were trying to accomplish. But that's just one part of the analysis. There are other parts of the analysis. What have people come to expect that these rights mean? What have ensuing changes in our society um, meant for the expression of these rights? Um, what will be the effect of enshrining these rights or um, eliminating these rights in terms of uh, contemporary expectations of citizenship and, and so forth? All of those things, is it manageable under the current system? How would these rights be vindicated? I think there are many, many questions that go into a responsible analysis. But yes, we do have to engage that set of questions about, you know, uh, who, who wrote it and when did they write it and why did they write it and what were they trying to accomplish? And it's, it's interesting, uh, Joy, you know, it's almost like people reading the Bible. You know, there, there are, of course, people who read the words, you know, and they just say, and they, you know, will cite chapter and verse of uh, what it says in particular chapters of the Bible, but they haven't done the work of figuring out, well, who wrote that? <laughs> did God say it or did Paul say it? Uh, when was it written? Uh, who was it being written to? Who was the audience? What was the context in which it was being written? What was the truth about the life of the person who was writing this particular provision that might explain their motivations? For writing it in this way, right? Um, th this is, you know, this is why reading is fundamental, and reading is not just being able to pronounce words on the page, um, and and it's part of why learning about reading and education is so important. Learning how to read critically is vital. It's the work of lawyers for sure, um, and it's one of the reasons why I reject um, any school of thought that tries to restrict me uh, to just the plain words on the page. Um, I, I think we're better than that. I think uh, being a legal scholar, being a judge, being a litigator is the art of, of more than that, is the art of being able to put that flesh on the bones. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's important, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. You know, I find that interesting. My grandmother founded a Bible college and she would often talk about that yes, there is <clears throat> the Bible, there's the words that we believe are inspired by God, but that it doesn't, it does, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't bring the worldview of that person and what was going on to mm -hmm. the table so that you can expand and understand a little bit more the context and mm -hmm. therefore may have a greater way of how you can apply it to your life if you understand or not was or not right <laughs> it was like this ain't relevant <laughs> like to what was going on <laughs> and like all of the history and the culture and the cons you know all of that mm -hmm. provides to to that context i find that and you know just in general i always have this this rant about people who want to go back to certain points 
<laughs> and I'm just like, aren't we supposed to evolve? Aren't like, isn't this what we say that we are more intelligent than you know animals than <laughs> you know other living beings? That well, I think that I we think for some people, some I think for some people, if they feel like the past was working for them, that it was a guarantee of their continued power and supremacy then they would like to hold us right there. They would like to hold us in that position. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, um, that is that has not prevailed, but I do think that that's a, a huge part of it. It is, you know, the constitution in this country is, is very much a document that um, is about power. And, uh, you know, we talk about it in lofty terms and it's about law and rights for sure, but it is most certainly also about power. And I think that there are some who 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 see that more clearly than perhaps many of us have seen it. And they um, they approach the document with that lens. Well, let's stay there a little bit more because when I'm describing civics, getting people engaged in the process. I talk about that aspect of power, right? The, you know, voting gives you some amount of power to be able to choose who represents you, right? In addition to a number of other things that we can go down the list on. You being able to testify at hearings, to comment on the budget, to all of those different things is about power and resources. And to your point, being able to hold us back or hold us at a particular period means that folks who have power in their power in that space. And there is a level of fear that, you know, if we spend, expand it too much, then, you know, there, you know, there goes my reins. Like I no longer have control over it. And that fear is what drives me. And I can use that fear to, to, promote division, you know, and separatism among other people to say, we don't know what we'll get if we give other people power. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. that participation in civics is all about power. And so when I say to people, it like you're giving up power by not participating, you know, by not giving voice, by not, where we going to, are we going to have setbacks? Yes. But you're giving it up willingly by mm -hmm. not even being involved. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my mantra has been, um, you know, while I've been at, at, at LDF and, and since, leave no power on the table, you know, and I've, you know, I'm on Twitter, hashtag, leave no power on the table. And what I mean is that we don't even use all the power that is available to us. Uh, it is true that we need more power, but it's also true that most of us don't even use the powers that are available to us. And that's, you know, we started the conversation there. You know, if you're only voting, but you never call your senator and say, I'd like to see this happen or that happen, you know, um, if you are only um, uh, protesting, but you don't vote, <laughs> you know, if you're only boycotting, but um, you don't, you try to get out of jury service, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a whole array of ways in which we can have our voices heard and, and, and demonstrate our power. And most of us are, are very picky about what things on the menu we're prepared to do. So it does not, it should not surprise us 
that we don't have all of the power that we need to um, transform you know, our lives in this country. To be clear, the powers that are arrayed against us, they have significantly more resources than we do and they use them. Um, but we are not without power. We are just um, not fully deploying the power we have and in some instances not deploying it strategically or in other instances not deploying it consistently. But that is not to um, underestimate the array of forces that stand against progressive people, black people, members of the LGBTQ community. It doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that um, they, they have an incredible amount of resources at their disposal. They are prepared to use power in ways that we are not. And they have exactly what you just described, fear. And fear is a great motivator. They are fearful that um, they will not be able to maintain the power that they have traditionally had and that they will not be able to pass that power on to their children. And that's yeah. a huge motivator. Yeah. So I want to shift really quickly because there has always been this tension between the states and the federal government. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And we know that goes back early. <laughs> and over mm -hmm. the past few decades, we've seen that play out in areas of education when I think this was under Bush during the Leave No Child Behind piece and the fact should we have an education piece at the federal government in the first place. Mm -hmm. There's health care, right, in the Obama administration when we get to Affordable Health, the CARE Act. And then there's obviously voting rights that have ping-ponged a number of times as well. Do Again, this is just my legal naive. <laughs> Do we need more constitutional amendments to sort of address and speak to some of these issues? Or are we going to... I'm just trying to think of like, what are some more forward-thinking ways in which we can deal with some of these questions, particularly that are fundamental to our rights, like voting rights, right? Is there some kind of way that we need more in the Constitution to sort of address these, these questions? Well, I, I, would, I would be uh, crazy to say no, right? I mean, I, you know, one of the things I've always loved about the South African Constitution, the, the new South African Constitution, at least relatively new, you know, is that it spells out things very explicitly um, in ways that our Constitution is, you know, a little bit more um, opaque. And so, you know, having, having rights spelled out is, would certainly be preferable from a litigator standpoint, would make it easier for us to be able to to um, you know, use provisions of the Constitution in the and that goes back to the discussion even about having the Bill of Rights in the first place, right? Is yeah. that there was this discussion about we needed more spelled out what people yep. you know have the right to their protections and things of that nature. Absolutely, and obviously, Constitution making and building and writing is you know push and pull and compromises, and um, and so we we recognize that um, you know it's a it's a it's it's an imperfect. Um, process. But I guess I'm, I wanted, the reason I'm hesitating is because the, the, the thing that I'm most focused on right now is that we have failed to use the provisions of the constitution that we have. And when we have used them, we have been often turned back, um, you know, 
most recently by a Supreme Court, unwilling to accept um, the the truth of those provisions. And so I think we have some some tinkering to do that's not just about the words of the Constitution. And here I want to really sit with the Civil War amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the Constitution. We endure this bloody civil war with um, hundreds of thousands killed and injured, and we come out of it, uh, and we come out of that war with a commitment to addressing the principal issue that precipitates the civil war, which is uh, chattel slavery, the holding of black people in servitude and as property. Uh, And so we get three constitutional amendments, the 13th amendment, which ends slavery, the 14th amendment, which I wanna return to, but which guarantees equal protection of laws, guarantees the citizenship of black people free and formerly enslaved, and um, sets forth a whole set of of provisions that I wanna come back to that I think is illustrative of this conversation we're we're having right at this moment. And then the 15th amendment, which says you cannot deny the right to vote to people on account of race, color, um, et cetera, national origin. So you have these three amendments and these three amendments, Joy, are fundamentally a reset, a reset of the power dynamic in the country, a pretty explicit articulation of the expectation of how, um, of how uh, black people will be treated in the country and even a reset of the relationship between the federal government and the states. When the 14th amendment says no state shall make, right? This is the constitution saying we, we have to be more specific than we were in the past about the states because we've just come through the Civil War and we don't trust uh, the Southern states that have made their commitment to slavery and mm-hmm. who seceded from the Union. So the, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually quite explicit, right? We've got you know three amendments that are very specific in talking about what states can do and can't do. And each of those provisions carries with it an enforcement clause. This is the part of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments we often don't look at. Section 2 of the 13th Amendment, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, and Section 2 of the 15th Amendment, each of which reads that Congress shall have the power by appropriate legislation to enforce this article or to enforce the provisions of this article. This means that Congress was given the power to ensure the protection and enforcement of the rights articulated in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And it is from those provisions that Congress has the power to do things like pass a Voting Rights Act, right? Which is a piece of legislation designed to enforce the provisions of the 14th and 15th Amendment with regard to voting and Black people, right? But those enforcement clauses tell us something. They tell us that the framers, and now I'm speaking of the framers of the Civil War Amendments, the men who wrote those amendments, the men who influenced them and the women who influenced them in the writing of those amendments, were saying something very particular. We can't trust the states to do this on their own. We have to be clear in our language and we have to give Congress, the federal Congress, the ability to enforce the rights that we have articulated against states and state action that might try to take those rights away. That is a powerful constitutional reset. It is the second founding of our country. 
But what happened after the passage of those amendments? Well, during Reconstruction, we had real transformation happening. We had uh, federal troops in the South to protect Blacks. We had the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau to provide educational uh, uh, opportunities for Black people and housing and so on and so forth. And then we have the backlash, right? And we head into a period that pushes back against Reconstruction that becomes incredibly violent, um, in which the Supreme Court itself retreats from the promises of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and makes clear that they are exhausted with even thinking about the rights of Black people in the civil rights cases in, in 1883. And, um, and then, of course, you know, culminates by the 1890s, by 1896 with Plessy versus Ferguson, which enforces and, and which says that legal apartheid essentially is constitutional when this is obviously contrary to what the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments were attempting to accomplish. So I just, I, I say this because it, it isn't as though we haven't done it. There was a reset and a powerful new articulation of the, the relationship of power between the, the federal government and the states. There was a very explicit and particular way of talking about the rights of black people in the, in those states. Um, and, you know, it was essentially pushed back, denied and undercut by, uh, by white people <laughs> and by the Supreme court. Um, and yeah. we had to fight it, you know, we had to fight it into the, the 20th century. Remember, I just read you the enforcement clauses. Congress right. does nothing with that. I mean, for, they, 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 you know, there are a few civil rights statutes that are passed right at, at the end of the Civil War. But then the, Cong the Congress just sits on that power until we get to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They sit on that power for 100 years. So they, the power is there in the Constitution. It says Congress shall have the power to enforce. And Congress doesn't do it. We have to force them to do it by marching and by civil disobedience and so on and so forth. Um, so I just, I think it's so important for people to understand that what we are have been experiencing is a resistance to what already was the reset of the constitution. And there's no guarantee that we wouldn't experience yet another resistance to any new provisions. So it's not like, oh, new provisions are gonna solve the problem because the old provisions, they weren't that bad at the, you know, in terms of the Civil War amendments, they weren't that bad. As a matter of fact, and I'm, you know, obsessed with the 14th Amendment and, and organizing a project around it right now, um, you know, it, to me, the 14th Amendment is the most powerful articulation of uh, the way in which the framers understood the power of white supremacy and what would be needed to cabinet. Um, but but do we use all the provisions of the 14th Amendment? Look, the 14th Amendment is the provision, is the is the constitutional amendment that says we shouldn't be allowing insurrectionists to hold, uh, you know, positions in our state or federal government. That if you've rebelled against the government, that if you have engaged in insurrection, you shouldn't hold position. And yet right now we see no effort to try and enforce, you know, a provision explicitly articulated in the 14th Amendment. But we don't, we're not using it. We're allowing people who participated in, who fomented, who supported insurrection to remain in the government and to try and block the investigations of that activity 
and so forth. But it's there in the 14th Amendment. They knew that was a threat. That was a threat they were dealing with. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> Anytime I think we can think of something new to address thing, I was like, well, let me all let me go back to let me go back <laughs> and see. That's why, you know, part is, as an organizer and an advocate, I, I don't start from let me dream up something new that yeah. we can do. Yeah. I'm always like, let me go find the book or <laughs> the yes. oral history. of how we address this in the past and what we can do, because there's always a roadmap and a framework for how we move forward when we know, and this is why I think it's so important, you know, for our old histories, for our stories, for us to read and understand the past, because in that work is, you know, how you Mm -hmm. move forward and Mm -hmm. and, and go from there. I mean, and you just mentioning in terms of, I did a whole show on the 14th amendment with some Mm -hmm. other lawyers, but early on when I started the show partly because of that you know because I was like there's a whole bunch of stuff in here I don't think people be paying attention to (laughs) that's that's up in here if we just read it out loud it's right there January 8th 2021 I was posting you know on Twitter section two of the 14th amendment you know which says that you know people who engage in rebellion shouldn't you know shouldn't be allowed to sit um and I just I you know I'm sorry, uh, section three. And I I just, because I thought it was important. I thought it was important for us to understand that we actually have power and options. Um, But we have become so used to sitting on that power. We've we've become so used to um, not using, as my friend Tom Sienz, the the, um, executive director of the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund, who he constantly exhorts us, we have to use the whole constitution, you know? Um, And I, I think... That's a project, you know, for us yeah. to 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 think about and um, to understand that efforts were made to to who, by people who understood very well the power and resilience of white supremacy, and right. um, we need to understand why that power has not been used, what has prevented it, because whatever we want to do that is new will have to take account of the way in which that resistance would likely reconvene, um, right. you know. And then there are some, some, I don't want to say the, I'm trying to think of a better word than dangers, but to me, that's what it sounds like, you know, because there is this movement of having a constitutional convention to really look at, you know, some of the things that people want to pull out and pull back, right? So there is those those dangers of pushing forward and getting into a space of a constitutional convention that can cause further retraction. Oh, at this moment in this country, I would regard that as a very dangerous um, exercise. Um, You know, until we can figure out how to get our hands around reversing the gerrymandering of state legislatures, then I would not feel very uh, comfortable about a constitutional convention because they have been so gerrymandered um, in ways that do not reflect the will of the people um, that, you know, the, the, the uh, likelihood of mischief being done that would not serve the interests of progressive people who purport to support a constitutional um, convention. Um, it, it is very likely that mischief would be done that would be absolutely devastating. And so I just think we need to be super, super careful and make sure that we are um, 
that we create the conditions in which such a convention would produce results that would move us forward and not backwards. How can it be that you love the most unlovable? You know, you keep you keep using the word progressive, and mm -hmm. it's a question that I often ask folks who, particularly Black folks who have been in our movement politics for some time, because that progressive is used as a pejorative um, mm -hmm. in in our body politic and, you know, sort of mm -hmm. the current lexicon. Yeah. And it is also used not only as a pejorative against folks who, from folks who are conservative thinking or, but then also with, you know, left-leaning politics, right? There mm -hmm. is the difference mm -hmm. between the quote, new progressives mm -hmm. and the old progressives. And I did a show sometime talking about what progressive means to black folks, right? For me, who yeah. we've always been progressive, mm -hmm. like everybody mm -hmm. else just caught up to us. Yes. <laughs> so I would love to hear your thoughts yeah. on that. So, you know, to me, it's difficult for someone to, you know, charge you, which sometimes people do is like, oh, the old guard and the old way. And I'm like, mm -hmm. really? Mm -hmm. I feel mm -hmm. like you've been so. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I don't think hear that. So I don't think so. And when I say progressive, I don't mean capital P, I mean small p. In other words, people who are um, committed to moving us forward, meaning more equality, more justice, more rights, more compassion, more dignity, progress. That's what I mean. As opposed to people who want to take us backwards, who are regressive and want to take us back. Less rights, less equality, less justice, less dignity, and so on and so forth. So I don't mean it in a capital P sense, like the progressive movement or the progressive party. I mean, those of us who are aligned in a commitment to moving our country forward and to moving ourselves forward. And forward for me means a commitment to equality, to justice, to the dignity of every person within the borders of this country, to human rights, to a social safety net, um, to protection for children, protection for those who need it, um, uh, ensuring the rights of those who are disabled, ensuring the rights of those who are in the LGBTQ um, community. That is what I mean by progressive. Now within that, there may be you know, other dynamics um, that would make one consider themselves more progressive than others and so forth. But that's the basic meaning for me. If you are trying to restrict the rights of people who are who are marginalized, if you are trying to um, uh, shut off possibility and opportunity for people, um, if you um, are prepared to support an apparatus that results in oppression and that result, results in violence, particularly state violence, then you are not progressive. And um, so that's what I mean. And that and the commitment of those of us who are traveling through the world committed to that work, um, those are my people. And I may not agree with them on every tactic, but I don't care. They're my people because we are all moving in the same direction. Um, and um, yeah, no, I and I don't in any way re regard myself as an old guard, but I certainly can regard myself as, oh, I would be remiss to suggest that I was young. Um, I'm not. But as I have often said, um, progress requires the full, especially activism, requires the full ecosystem. Civil rights work does not get done by any one group. 
you need young people to have fresh ideas, to be impatient with us, to push us forward, to be bolder. You need older people who understand how this dynamic works and how power has worked in this society and where, how you, where, the, where the keys are and how you unlock the door, who understand backlash, who have that historical perspective that you and I were just talking about. Um, and you need all of those things. You know, you wouldn't in a family say we should just get rid of all the elders and let the children run the show. And you wouldn't just say we should get rid of the children, just let the old people be, be family. No, you need all the pieces of that ecosystem in order to move forward. And so I think that, you know, the, the um, attempt to keep wars going between the old and the young, I think it's silly. I think older activists have to respect young people and understand that they are necessary. Yes, we are too slow. Yes, they are pushing us. Yes, they are willing to start uncomfortable conversations that we don't want to have. Yes, they are bolder than we are. That's what it means to be young. I was a young activist too. I've been doing this since I was in my early 20s, right? You know, I've only ever done this, okay? And, but young activists also have to understand that older people who have devoted their lives to this have devoted their lives to a vision of that beloved community. And um, and we have had experiences that have allowed us to understand the ecosystem and the interlocking systems of white supremacy. We understand where the bodies are buried. We understand which doors are locked and we understand also who has the keys. And, um, and we also understand how progress works and that um, uh, you know, compromise is not always a, a, a bad word. You know, I look at the, what the right wing did with abortion and I was just talking about this in Chicago um, earlier this week, you know, they showed that if you stick with it, because that's all they did, right? They've been trying to overturn Roe versus Wade since it was decided. And what did they do? They never gave up and they waited until they got the court they wanted. They Once they got their 6-3 court, they knew they could do it. But along the way, they were fully prepared to whittle away at it. They didn't say we're just purists and until we have abolished abortion, we're not going to do anything. No, they got the Hyde Amendment. So poor women couldn't have access to abortions using uh, Medicaid. They had the gag rule that stopped doctors in federally funded family planning clinics from being able to talk about abortion. They, they dealt with partial birth abortion. They had um, laws for minors that required a judicial bypass or parental permission. They had all of these things that chipped away until they could get what they wanted. And nobody walked around saying, oh, they're not purists because they, they compromised and got those smaller things. They understood that chipping away is part of how you, you do it. You, it's a war of attrition. They will wear you out until they are in position to get the thing that they want. So I don't, you know, so that's, that's my view. It's not that I mean you should compromise away what you believe in, but um, there are tactics to this thing that are understood by older people as part of how change happens. Um, and then there's also young people who are, you know, like impatient and want it now and say, hold out for what you really want. And there's truth and value in that as well. But we have to embrace that whole ecosystem, especially those of us who are black and brown and marginalized. We have to, we don't, we can't afford to jettison any part of the ecosystem of activism. We need everybody's contribution. Um, and power, and we need everybody's knowledge and vision. And so um, I'm very much yeah. committed to, to ensuring you will never hear me denigrate some other activists, even if I disagree with them. Why? I have their phone number. I could call them. 
I sometimes don't like things that people say, either of my age cohort, of a younger age cohort. Why would I ever publicly um, denigrate? You You have not heard me do it and you will not hear me do it. You know, and people all, all, always try to, you know, draw you into that thing. I don't do it. I don't do it because I have their number. <laughs> and, um, and you know, we're in community and we're like, we're family. And you're not going to get me in that bag. You're not going to get right. me in that bag because we are too vulnerable to allow ourselves um, the luxury of others who are willing and able to do that. So that's just me. You know, others can, can choose another route, but this thing is too serious. And these people have made clear, our opposition has made clear how how far they're willing to go, how far they are willing to go to keep us as second-class citizens, to frustrate the intentions of those three amendments that were bought with blood. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, for, <laughs> I'm for the big tent because <laughs> it's gonna take us all to figure this thing out. Right. Well, you know, listen, I could talk to you all day, but I'm be respectful of your time. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come to the front of the class. I, you know, I believe we all learned something. I certainly did to go back and sort of, as you say, use the full, <laughs> the full power. And that's something, those are the kinds of demands we make to the candidates we're evaluating. Let's say if we're talking about yeah. Congress, right? Mm -hmm. Joy, can I give you an example that, you know, I think is relevant for the work that you're doing? It's, it's sure. you know, the whole conversation that we were having and have, and are still having about the filibuster, for example, I worked very hard to try to get Congress to pass uh, voting rights legislation and um, to amend the Voting Rights Act to address the Supreme Court's terrible decision in Shelby County versus Holder and other um, you know, decisions of the Supreme Court and to address voter suppression practices that have been intensifying in the states. And um, you know, we, we didn't have enough votes with the filibuster to be able to uh, get it past the Senate. And so, you know, with, along with other civil rights leaders, I met with Senator Manchin and we talked with Senator Sinema and all this stuff and all this stuff about the filibuster and and, and, you know, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, you know, insisting that the filibuster is necessary for democracy because it makes people come to the table and all this stuff that's, you know, this um, pie in the sky illusion. And, and my question is, OK, but you have a constitutional obligation that I just described in the enforcement provisions of the 14th and 15th Amendments, right, where Congress is given this power to enforce constitutional provisions and you're going to put up a Senate rule against that language, that's how we have to start talking to them. It's not just that you are not supporting something that I want, is that you are not fulfilling your obligation under the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments for Congress to enforce the provisions and the rights enshrined in those amendments. And you telling me about some rule that the Senate has adopted for how many votes and how they should talk about something cannot stand against a constitutional obligation. But we can't talk to them that way if we don't understand that it's a constitutional obligation. Now I will say I talked to him that way and it still didn't work, but that we should at least be clear about what he's about, right? About what he's doing and not allow ourselves to get in some bag and conversation that he just you know, believes in bipartisanship. You can believe whatever you wanna believe, but this document, this constitution, it tells you as a member of Congress what you are expected to do. So that's the kind of way I think um, when we're using the Constitution in our advocacy, we have to be able to to talk to these people.
love it. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me and to spend with us here at Sunday Civics. And I I really, really appreciate it. I love what what you do. Congratulations on this terrific show and on your NAACP nomination. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Go, 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 go,